So tonight I'm going to talk a little bit about just generally what the precepts are, a couple um, cautionary comments about um, how to use them. We'll go through the five, and then I'm going to share some ideas about how to practice with them so that they really um, are your own. I think the precepts can be really powerful. Um, They can be a helpful guidepost for our practice, for our lives. And they can also be really challenging. I think challenging, partly many of us um, grew up um, with maybe some pretty restrictive rules and we kind of resisted them and chafed at them. Um, Sometimes they can be challenging because They um, have some very clear guidelines, and we don't always follow them. Maybe we choose not to, or we can't, or we just tend tend to resist them. Um, And sometimes when I've talked with other people about the precepts, one person said to me, I just don't like being told what to do. So there's that part of the challenge as well. Each of the precepts has some interesting complexities and nuances. You know, I'm a gardener, and many folks in the Pacific Northwest are. And, you know, you think about those unwanted pests and how we deal with them, or sometimes their lifestyle choices about meat, whether we take in meat protein or intoxicants. And we'll get into those, um, those challenges and also the nuances. So a couple preface remarks as we begin this, because studying and practicing with the precepts is not a test of purity. It's not an opportunity to feel guilt or shame or start going down that path of self-judgment. One of the teachers on the Northwest, well, actually he's in California, Gil Fronsdale, he puts it this way. He says, the precepts are based on the observation that some actions lead to suffering for myself and others, and other actions lead to happiness and freedom. So when we ask ourselves whether my actions lead to increased suffering or increased happiness, it can be a really good springboard for investigation. I think the precepts are really about how I want to live my life, how I want to be fully present and acting with kindness and compassion that Holly just spoke to, being mindful of what's going on in mind, body, and heart, and speech. And this practice is about honesty, really honestly asking ourselves whether when our behavior is in sync with our values, when we're aligned, or when it's not. I think it's also important not to do much comparing. I don't think comparing is ever really very helpful, but we're not looking at whether, you know, she's more virtuous and following the precepts better or he's not, or it's really an investigation within ourselves. These are all trainings. They're trainings about avoiding harmful actions of body and speech. We're all just normal human beings living with all the conditions and experiences that have come along and have brought us to this moment. 
for those of you who've gone on retreats, you know, we take the precepts and we actually, they are rules of conduct. In life, we're all lay practitioners and they're, um, they can really be very vibrant guidelines for ethical behavior. There's a kind of a continuum of, as I've looked at different, what different teachers say about the precepts. One, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, says that um, the precepts should be followed to the letter. Um, others talk more about them being just general guidelines for life. Just as I mentioned earlier about how Philip Moffat has had encouraged us to write our own. Later on, I'll share some of the way that Philip um, reframed them. And however we practice with them, really keeping in mind what the main intent is for each of them. For me, practicing with the precepts is really how I stay aligned so that my behaviors are consistent the best that I'm able with my values and with the practices and teachings of the Dhamma. And what I'm going to say this evening about some of the challenges with these precepts are mine. It's how I work with them. So um, I really encourage people to investigate it and look at this in your own way to find ethical guidelines that really work for you. I was talking with Tim Guile, one of our guiding teachers, about uh, my talk on precepts, and he told me that in the Buddhist time, the precepts were not laid out in a list like we have them. They were just incorporated into the overall teachings. He also said that in a lot of monastic communities, they, the monks and nuns regularly share with each other how they are working with the precepts and identifying any resistances or challenges that have arisen. Steve mentioned when he introduced me that I've been part of Seattle Insight since its beginning. And as a result, I'm really very fortunate. I'm in a whole bunch of different um, Dharma groups, different Kalyana Mita groups. Kalyana Mita means spiritual friend. And for the last 10 or 15 years, I've been in a group of eight or 10 women. We call ourselves the Dharma Breakfast Group. <clears throat> and we take turns leading the discussion. And when I, I was my turn last, um, this past uh, couple weeks, and I brought, since precepts are up on my mind, I had us all talking about it. And it was really helpful to listen to how these friends um, responded to him. You know, one woman said that the precepts are way too wordy and she feels it's like putting on clothes that are too tight. For others, they said they were really, they really welcomed them and that every time they recited them or looked at them, they found really comfort and like, like to chant them. We all felt that even though there's some resistances to them, it's a um, really useful place to go. So these are the way this I'm going to share the way the precepts are most often shared and described. This is the language. I undertake the training to refrain from taking life. 
I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not freely given. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the training to refrain from false and unskillful speech. And I undertake the training to refrain from intoxication that leads to heedlessness. So before I go into looking at each one of these, I'd like to invite us both on Zoom and here in the room to just take a two to three minute moment of some moments of silence and ask yourselves, how do you relate to the precepts? Do you find them that they're a central part of your practice? Or are they something that you recite at retreats and don't find them really very useful? Do you find any stress or resistance arise when you contemplate them? Just take a moment and notice what's the state of your mind as you anticipate we're going to spend the next 15 to 30, 40 minutes talking about the precepts. So I'll be quiet for just a couple minutes and let everybody kind of get a sense of right now in this moment, what's your relationship to the precepts? So thank you for being willing to enter this exploration with me. So each of these precepts begins with the phrase, I undertake the training. I think it's just like the entire path. It's a, the path is a training, a process, a, a practice. It's not a one time and done. We keep the process alive. We keep on coming back in our meditation to when the mind wants to take us somewhere, or we keep noticing the moments of change and under, deepen our understanding of impermanence. So we really keep the process alive. The second part of each statement is a statement of refraining from. As I mentioned, a number of teachers in our tradition have reframed the precepts from a refraining from to a statement of positivity. Philip Moffat, when he 
rewrote them, he starts each one with, to the best of my ability, which I think is a really lovely way of, of approaching our, our guidelines and our aspirations. The phrase that is so often used in our practice of ehi pasiko, see for yourself, is really ripe territory for practicing with the precepts to explore and understand them, really make them our own. One of the first things that we really need to do, um, I think, is to just decide that this exploration is just between me and me. So we're going to be really honest. Um, Steve and I often see each other on Saturday mornings at Clear Mountain Monastery. And a couple months ago, there was a visiting monk. And he, in part of his talk, he said that he was asked, what's the most important thing you've learned in the 17 years that you've been a monk? And his answer was being honest with myself. So I think that's a, a helpful thing to bring along as we start looking at each of these. So the first one, I undertake the training to refrain from taking life, sometimes stated as to refrain from killing living creatures. The most obvious challenge for me comes from the fact that I'm an omnivore. Um, And so I know that I am consuming the flesh of formerly living beings. I spent a number of years as a vegetarian and found over time that my body does best with some meat protein. So asking you as you explore this, are you a vegetarian? If so, what does that mean for you? If you're not, how do you deal with that, just this one aspect of our food intake? Another challenge under this one is how I mentioned that I'm a gardener. And there are slugs. There are moths that lay eggs on my cabbages and broccoli. And then I li- I'm a householder, and there are sugar ants that come into my house. And the other day I had this big spider in my house, and I... I did what I always do. I talk to it really quietly and I get a hard piece of paper and a cup and I put the spider on the piece of paper and I gently take it outside. And I've been doing that. I think a lot of us have probably been doing that for years. But I have a different relationship to those sugar ants that come in through my windows and spread all over my my kitchen. There's a lovely Dharma friend I've met on Zoom on the Tuesday and Thursday morning drop-in sits. She was telling me that she has a really big garden and she has a problem with gophers. And she used the phrase, but I'm killing them mindfully. So is that an oxymoron? As we practice with these, are we justifying, you know, behavior? Are we really looking at ourselves honestly. Um, And what do we do with um, those challenges uh, with this first precept? Many of us, especially living in the Pacific Northwest, treat trees as living beings. You know, we 
all live in homes that are made with a lot of the wood. And I also have a, a big campfire place on my um, patio. You know, we, we talk about um, not killing sentient beings, you know, and who are we to decide what's, what, which beings are sentient and which aren't. Um, that um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu that I mentioned earlier really has a very no-nonsense approach to the precepts. He says, if this precept allow you to kill living beings when their presence is inconvenient, that would place your convenience on a higher level than your compassion for life. Convenience would become your unspoken standard, which then, of course, provides huge tracts of fertile ground for hypocrisy and denial. And that's, you know, that's a pretty, pretty pure, hard line that he talks about. And I, um, I don't think, I, I'm not saying that that's the one that everybody needs to adopt. I obviously haven't. The convenience of what I feel makes my body um, feel healthy by eating meat protein, how I, you know, raise the food in my garden. Anyway, good good questions to be looking at with that first precept. The second one, I undertake the training to refrain from what is not given. And sometimes stated, I undertake the training to refrain from what is not freely given. And how important is that word freely? I mean, few of us steal. But I think the question of whether we sometimes take up more space in a conversation or a friendship is our sense of me, that little, that little self or the big self is always in the lead, always the center of the world that we're in. Sometimes I have seen myself kind of blurt right in. I've jumped right into a, a time with a friend talking about myself without even checking in whether that person has the time and emotional space to be really be engaged that way. <clears throat> Some Westerners take this precept even to be in a broader way and looking at as Americans, whether our level of consumption can be justified given the unequal distribution of goods and resources in the world. Good questions to be looking at. The third one, I undertake the training to refrain from wrong conduct in sexual pleasures. Or sometimes it's stated, I refrain, I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. It's often talked about in ways of not developing inappropriate sexual relationships and not abusing our sexuality. One of the ways that a teacher talks about this is asking ourselves whether the relationship is as important, if not more important, than the sexual gratification, really looking at how we treat the other person with whom we're involved sexually. For five or six years, I worked with teens at a teen mindfulness retreat that we had every year. And when we took this precept, we extended the precept into the area of flirting and looked at what kind of messages flirtatious behavior sends. 
for some of these teens, it was the first time they ever even thought about that. It was, it was pretty exciting to um, talk with them about that one. The fourth is, I undertake the training to refrain from false and harsh speech. A few weeks ago, Ajahn Nisibo of Clear Mountain, in a talk on um, wise or right speech, said that the Buddha taught directly only about two aspects, no lying and no idle chatter or gossip. But those of us who've worked with wise speech know that there are other aspects, that it should be truthful, timely, appropriately, appropriate, not harsh, and of benefit. For me, you know, I can comply and avoid um, false speech. I don't lie, and I've worked pretty hard at being a good listener. But one of the areas of challenge comes from gossip or idle speech. I'm in this other long-standing Dharma group, and there's a member who, whenever this person talks, it always comes across as kind of confusing, and there seems to be a lot of contradictory comments. And after each of these meetings, these two other friends and I get together, and we've been known to kind of roll our eyes and go, what the world was this person talking about? And we recently were reviewing that behavior and realized that in a pretty negative, unskillful way, the three of us were feeling really connected, but really at the expense of this other person. Um, And so asking ourselves, was that skillful? Was that wise speech? Another area around wise speech is, when's it appropriate to say things that may be difficult or critical? where you're really standing up for yourself in a friendship and you know you need to say something that's hard. How do you do that? Another one for me is refraining from offering advice when it's not being requested. I recently learned this new acronym. It may not be new to you all, but it was to me. The acronym is W-A-I-T, and it stands for Why am I talking? So another way of looking at this precept around wise speech is really asking ourselves when we're speaking and why are we doing that? And the last one is undertaking the training to refrain from intoxicants, which can lead to heedlessness. I indulge modestly in both marijuana and alcohol. And here... What I do, and I, I still haven't figured out whether this is just justification, is that I look at the last half of the sentence and ask myself, is this leading to heedlessness? And thus far, I think not. But um, as I said, you know, it's a, it's a practice that's alive for me. Um, so those are the five precepts. And I have some suggestions for um, some practices. The first one, as I mentioned, about being honest with ourselves. And just like I had shared with my own practice, asking myself, am I just justifying aberrant behavior? Is it leading, is there some hypocrisy in here? Um, How am I really doing this? 
So journaling about it, maybe having a precept or dharma buddy to talk about. Um, one of the beauties, beautiful things about sangha is how even the sanghas that are made up totally of Zoom, we've really grown to trust each other and be vulnerable with each other. So talking about um, how you're dealing with the precepts with friends is, um, I think, can be really helpful. A second way to practice is really looking at the language and seeing if you altered the language, would that make it easier to work with? A lot of people change that first precept into refraining from doing harm. And again, the question of, is this just for our own convenience? Um, But looking at them and seeing if different language might be helpful, might be a way to have guidelines for ethical living be really alive for you. A friend from the Dharma Breakfast Group said that she finds that there's a metta practice that's inside of working with the precepts. Certainly for the first one, a reminder to not harm oneself. Um, The fourth one of not using harsh speech for ourselves. All of them um, can really be turned inward and that could be very, um, very useful. I find with the second precept, one of the ways it's helped me practice with it is by looking at opportunities and experiences in my life about how I give and how I receive. I've examined how I feel when others have taken from me things that I actually haven't offered, that really getting in touch with my own experience about that has been a good starting point for me to look at what's my behavior like and and am I taking things that actually have not been offered. In Philip Moffat's reframing for the third uh, precept, he uses this language. To the best of my ability, I will respect and support ongoing relationships honor my commitments, and practice discernment between the beauty of eros and a feeling as a feeling and the compulsiveness to act it out. With the fourth precept about speech, a friend recently said as she was practicing with it, she realized that in a situation where she had um, behaved and spoken in, in a way that friends were critical of, instead of just owning up to it and saying her apologies, she found herself trying to maintain her self-image as a really good person. And so she was kind of stretching the truth a bit just to um, protect um the way she saw herself. I think that it's important to look at the intent of each precept. When you look at the first one, the refraining from killing, 
Really, the spirit is reverence for life and to live a life of non-harming. Thich Nhat Hanh took the precepts and turned them into mindfulness trainings. Um, and they're just beautiful. This one, he, um, I'm going to end my talk with this quote from how he dealt with issues around health and nourishment and healing. This is the way Thich Nhat Hanh put it. I will practice coming back to the present moment to be in touch with the refreshing, healing, and nourishing elements in, in me and around me, not letting regrets and sorrow drag me back into the past, nor letting anxieties, fear, or craving pull me out of the present moment. I am determined not to try to cover up loneliness, anxiety, or other suffering by losing myself in consumption. <laughs> 